Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden has been racking up some major recent wins. The CHIPS bill uh, has been approved and is going to be signed into law. That will rejuvenate the U.S. microelectronics industry and reduce America's reliance on foreign-made chips and improve investment in technologies overall. His long-delayed signature climate, healthcare, and tax package appears to be on the verge of Senate approval after two recalcitrant members of his own party, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, have signed. On nearly a year after a shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan, Biden authorized the precision strike that precisely killed Al Qaeda leader and 9 11 planner Ayman al Zawahiri. The Senate, 95 to 1, approved Finland and Sweden's membership in NATO, with only Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, dissenting, saying that Russia isn't a threat, but China is. The PACT Act for medical care for veterans uh, and military members with disabilities traced to burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan also has gained ground. And it looks like the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe versus Wade combined with GOP efforts to ban abortions could backfire on Republicans in November. At least that's what Democrats hope. As Russia's war on Ukraine continues, Washington has tightened sanctions on Moscow and promised uh, Kiev more military aid as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi became the senior most American leader to visit Taiwan in 25 years, allowing Beijing to manufacture outrage and launch live fire military drills that are destabilizing the region. And Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks, in what could be or what is a major roles and missions decision, decided to give the National Cruise Missile Defense an unmanned aircraft defense mission to the United States Air Force. The United States Army, of course, uh, has the National Missile Defense uh, Against Ballistic Threats uh, mission now. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and the host of a great podcast called uh, Brussels Sprouts, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. And joining us briefly later in the program to frame the missile defense decision uh, will be Dr. Tom Carrico, who heads CSIS's missile defense uh, project. Uh, everybody, welcome back. Uh, it's been uh, too long before we get started. Uh, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And also check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a deep and thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again uh, for uh, joining us. It's been too long. Hope you guys have had a, a nice little break from the podcast. Uh, Michael, start us off. Uh, welcome back indeed. Uh, since Joe Biden became president, you've kept alive the hope uh, and talked about reconciliation, forcing me to apologize on your behalf to the audience. I now can say Iron Mike was right. Uh, you kept hope alive. Um, and, and it was actually a pretty strong week for Joe Biden, right? Gas prices continue to fall. Jobs numbers are rising. There are inflation concerns, but chips has been packed, passed. Pact is on the verge. Zawahiri is dead. Now we've got climate, health care, and tax moving forward. 
and then we have NDAA and appropriations. Walk us through all of this, uh, where it stands, because from your standpoint, it's actually a unitary discussion because the leg bone's connected to the thigh bone and eventually, you know, we, we get to the head. Okay, sure. There's a lot to unwrap. We took, we took a, a picked a bad week to uh, take a break from the podcast because a lot been happening the last two weeks. So, real quick, because uh, you mentioned uh, NDA and appropriations. Uh, so, you know, we, we mentioned that you know the Senate had released their NDAA. Uh, as we know, that's 45 billion over the president's budget. I'd mentioned that the appropriators in the Senate saw that 45 billion as the floor. Uh, they released their bill last week, which was 30 billion dollars over the president's budget request. However, to me, that's an indicator that they see the final budget deal as being $60 billion over the president's budget request because they know that the House will want half that money uh, and they don't want to add things to their bill they have to give up in conference. So that is my gut telling me that we're looking at a number close to $60 billion uh, when a budget deal is made. Uh, so last week, as you mentioned, uh, last Wednesday, the CHIPS Act was passed in the Senate. Uh, it's really CHIPS Plus because, you know, CHIPS is about $52 billion, uh, which encourages industry to develop and research, you know, provide money for research and development for semiconductors to bring that back to the United States. But it did add an extra $200 billion plus, you know, for science and technology research uh, in, in the coming years. That passed with bipartisan support in the Senate. Um, there were over, over a third of the Republicans in the Senate, including Mitch McConnell, voted for it. But remember, they said they were going to support that bill, provided that reconciliation, you know, slash build back better was dead. And that was their understanding. But within hours, of the CHIPS bill passing, uh, Manchin, Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer stunned the political world with an announcement on a deal on reconciliation, uh, and much larger than what people were thinking. And that, in turn, forced House Republicans then to start whipping against the CHIPS bill, which was being voted on in the House the next day. However, the bill did pass the House, not only with all the Democrats supporting it, but with 24 uh, Republicans supporting right. it. Number would have been bigger if the Republicans didn't vote whip against it. Now, the reconciliation package, even though it really is a Build Back Better Light is being dubbed uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so even though it really has little to do with inflation, but the, the proposal that came out uh, last week you know, would extend the uh, 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 subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. It would allow Medicare to negotiate uh, pricing with pharmaceutical companies, which will save several hundred billion dollars. Uh, it provides uh, money for uh, actually a great deal of money, over th about 370 billion over the next decade in climate change uh, funding to fight climate change, providing money for wind and solar, uh, energy manufacturing tax credits, electric vehicles, uh, you know, with the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent, you know, by 2030. Uh, Democrats also adding things in there on insulin price caps. There's a really a lot. Uh, going on in this bill. Like it's not everything Democrats wanted. It does not include, you know, free community college, it does not include universal pre-K, but a lot more than they thought they were going to get. And, you know, the way they're, and that, that, the bill's not actually, in addition to being paid for, the Democrats actually believe it will reduce the deficit by about 300 billion uh, over the next 10 years. Now, the initial pay-fors that were laid out last week would, uh, in, would provide for a minimum corporate tax of 15%, because there are some corporations that don't pay taxes in this country. Uh, it would provide for a closing the carried interest loophole and would provide funds for increased enforcement to go after folks that, that don't pay taxes. Now, the problem was that Senator Cinema was not included in these discussions. So we've been waiting with bated breath since last Wednesday to find out what is Senator Cinema going to do. And last night, uh, Senator Cinema announced a deal uh, with Schumer and the, and the Senate Democrats that would get rid of uh, this, the provision to close the carried interest loophole. However, it would replace it by adding a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks, which actually would bring in more revenue to the government than closing the carried interest loophole. It would also make some changes 
to the 15% uh, corporate minimum tax by removing some provisions dealing with accelerated depreciation and would include some money uh, to deal with, with uh, drought resiliency investments. But uh, now the, the Senate has to deal with the parliamentarian to get them to agree uh, to the provisions in the bill. That work will continue over the weekend, but it's expected that the Senate will vote on this uh, next Monday or Tuesday and that the House then will come back next week and vote on this and that this will pass. And then this will pave the way too for discussions on an end of the year budget deal as well so that the appropriations bills you know, can, can hopefully get passed. And, and let me tell, uh, take you to uh, the president's uh, political uh, prospects and the primaries and how you think uh, they shaped up. Abortion ended up being a bigger issue and Trump also ended up being a bigger issue. We now have election deniers um, right, who are peddling myths and disinformation about stolen elections in the position now to control elections in a lot of states if these guys uh, end up winning. And, and Dove, I want to ask you about uh, whether or not this was a good for Joe Biden and whether or not it changes any dynamics uh, going into November, because I sense that some of it does. The base did want uh, a lot of stuff that is in this reconciliation package, uh, and ultimately um, they're going to be getting it. But Michael, start us off, and then I want to go to Dove on, on what he thought about the president's week and how it changes any vectors. Sure. Look, I think the president really did have a good week. And frankly, I think if you look back on the successes he's already had in the first two years are pretty extensive. I mean, you really had and in a lot of bipartisan successes on the gun safety bill, on the bipartisan infrastructure package, uh, on, on, on the PACT Act, you know, passing on chips. Uh, this will be the second reconciliation package he's been able to pass because the first one he passed when he first came in. Uh, unfortunately, I think that this bill, uh, when it does pass, I don't think we're really going to feel much of the impacts of it prior to the election. And, you know, even though they are calling it the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, today's job numbers, which I think are great for the president in the sense of showing that the economy is strong. I mean, the economy added 528,000 jobs last month, which and they were expecting the economy to add just 250,000 jobs. Um, but that will continue to, unfortunately, for the president to fuel inflation, and that will continue to be an issue go, you know, going into the election. And it'll force the Fed to continue to raise rates to try and cool the economy down. Um, as far as the primaries go, look, I mean, uh, it was a mixed bag again for Trump. I mean, Trump ran the table in Arizona. His candidate won the nomination for governor, uh, for Senate, and for Secretary of State. Um, in Missouri, uh, you know, he tried to play cute by endorsing the Erics because there were two Erics running, Eric Schmidt and Eric Reitens. Eric Reitens was the one that everybody was really worried about, that if he won the primary, he could lose the general. He did not win. Eric Schmidt uh, won the Republican nomination. So I think Missouri now becomes a hold, you know, for the Republicans. Um, in Washington State, you know, there were two Democrat, two Republicans who voted for impeachment who were facing Trump challengers. The Those are they're still counting votes, believe it or not, but it looks like they will hold on. Uh, Dan Newhouse is ahead. And Jimmy Herrera Butler is ahead, but it's still very, very close. Um, so we'll, that still remains to be seen, but I think they will hold on. But in Michigan, uh, you know, Peter Meyer, who, you know, did vote to impeach, um, uh, the Democrats actually uh, supported his opponent in the primary. The Democratic Campaign Committee here in town, which Democrats give money to to support Democrats, funded the Republican, who is an election denier and, you know, is on record supporting anti-Semites. And whereas the Democrats publicly are trying to say, well, we did that, you know, in order to make the seat more vulnerable where we can win privately. And I talked to several senior Democrats yesterday are fuming about this. That, you know, how can Pelosi say she wants a strong Republican Party and America needs to have two strong parties when the Democrats then start to play in Republican primaries and defeat people that the Democrats really need to maintain you know, our sense of democracy? So this was uh, a, a poor move. And the Democrats better win that seat in the general or they're really going to be held to pay for them internally. It's uh, it, it's it's just it's utterly ludicrous because actually you you could actually lose. 
right? Yes. Um, I mean, one of the things Democrats are good at sometimes is not showing up for these off races. They'll show up presidential, uh, for the presidential elections, but some of these they, they really don't show up for. Uh, and, and so you could end up um, uh, with, with very bad outcomes. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, it's a great outcome, I suppose. Um, speaking about uh, Republicans, Doug, give us your, your sense, right? I mean, you've, uh, you are an equal opportunity critic, and you've been both supportive and critical of the president in terms of, um, um, you know, his uh, agenda. Um, um, I, I would like to say you're on the thoughtful side of constructive criticism. Walk us through. Do you think the president had um, has had a good couple of weeks? And if he's had a good couple of weeks, does it change anything in November, ultimately? Well, he certainly had a good couple of weeks, and I totally agree with Michael on that. Um, but I would say this. To me, the big difference is going to be what I'm experiencing right now. I'm on the road, and I just filled up my car at $4.15 when it was around 5 bucks only a few weeks ago. And if that continues to be the trend, then that's going to hurt. Um, that that'll rather help Mr. Biden. It might even increase the percentage of people who think he's doing a good job. I think most people are on vacation. Uh, I'm not sure they're paying an awful lot of attention to what goes on in Washington. Uh, but yeah, he's gotten uh, a lot of bipartisan support, ranging literally from uh, the uh, new bill that uh, Michael was talking about, all the way to the 95 to one vote on NATO uh, entry for Sweden and Finland. Um, he did uh, oppose at least to, at some point, uh, Miss uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, but at the end he turned around about it. Uh, and I think most people, again, on both sides of the aisle think what she did was right. Uh, but that doesn't hurt Democrats, that actually helps them. So I would say that on balance, uh, it's been a good couple of weeks. And as long as the uh, price of uh, gasoline at the pump keeps going down, uh, who knows? The Democrats might be doing a little bit better than they anticipated a month ago. Michael, your take on this was um, that the, the Democrats could actually hold the Senate but are likely to lose the House. And this paves us into the Nancy Pelosi discussion. And Patrick's going to be up next. Right. I mean, the sense that the speaker went now because she understands that she might not be speaker uh, come next year, that this was an opportunity for her to do that on an issue which was very, very passionate and has been consistent in her entire 40 year plus political career. Uh, right. Do, do you think that there's any shift in dynamic? Right. I mean, Michael has sort of said that it's possible for Republicans to maintain the Senate. I think that that's a consensus that be a reality, but they're almost assured to lose the House. Do you think that what we for example, happened in Kansas, um, it's not exactly a liberal state. And yet there was enormous pushback on uh, abortion bans, whatever codifying uh, constitutional moves. From your standpoint, do you think that this gives uh, the Democrats the need to keep the House and maybe even expand in the Senate? Or do they keep the Senate? You know, if, if they're lucky, they keep both. Uh, what's, what's your sense on how this sort of affects the dynamic, especially given some of the candidates that they're going to be running in some of these states? Look, I think the House is a goner. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and I would tell you this. One other thing to consider, if indeed, uh, as Michael and I both feel that the Senate stays Democratic, the House goes Republican, then Mr. Biden realizes he's not going to get anything done domestically for two years. Now, he may or may not announce that he's not running again. My guess is after the elections, he might do that. But he's going to focus on foreign policy, which he loves anyway, and which the uh, 
the, the stalemate on the Hill will not particularly affect because on foreign policy, whether it's China, which Patrick will talk about, or Ukraine, uh, which Jim, I'm sure, will talk about, most foreign policy issues are bipartisan. And so he's going to have right. that tailwind behind him. And so I think that as a result of a split Hill, you're going to see a much more foreign policy oriented president. Right. It further reinforces this sense that uh, Joe Biden is a lot like George H.W. Bush, right? Somebody who was uh, masterful on foreign policy, uh, even if uh, facing uh, some uh, domestic political hurdles. Uh, Patrick, um, thank you for uh, uh, being patient. And Jim, I want to thank you as well. But we're going to get to Russia um, in, in a moment. Patrick, I mean, obviously, uh, the discussion uh, for for some is that Nancy Pelosi should not have gone uh, to Taiwan. More of the sense was that maybe the timing was not right uh, and that this was an unnecessary provocation at an unnecessary time. Tom Friedman sort of sized up, I think, uh, what some of the people in the White House thought about this. Uh, we've been discussing this for many weeks as sort of a countdown. I think the best thing would have been to not actually publicly discuss it because anybody who knows Nancy Pelosi knows she was not going to back off from making this decision, uh, even if the president had asked her. Uh, and it's not abundantly clear that the president asked her not to go, but the administration did mount a very collective push to sort of try to distance themselves from as well as the military that's concerned about it. Ultimately, the question is what Antony Blinken said, that the Chinese are very good at manufacturing provocation. And let's be honest, Taiwan competing under its own flag, under its own name is a provocation, right? The, the international community has virtually expunged the name Taiwan or Republic of China, uh, right? I mean, so of this is manufactured and put another way, if you were going to infuriate China, wouldn't it have been, been better to infuriate China with a $35 billion weapons package, for example, right? I mean, was this a wasted opportunity or was this from your standpoint, what I think Nancy Pelosi thought it was, we have to normalize people visiting this country because it is a country like any other country. And why are we dancing around this? Well, I think, uh, you know, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, five foot five, 82 years old, has uh, triggered the fourth Taiwan crisis. But that is, as uh, Secretary Blinken said, um, entirely manufactured out of Beijing. Um, that's how they've chosen to use this visit. Yes, the visit could have come at a different time. It could have been done under different circumstances. It could have been preceded by a bigger arms package uh, and, and, and more diplomacy. But um, this is when it's come. Um, the reality is she's not the first member of the House or not even the first House speaker to visit Taiwan. What's changed is the context that in 2022, China is not the China 1995, which was the third Taiwan crisis when they also conducted missile tests that landed off of Kaohsiung at the south of the island of Taiwan. Um, but um, it's not the 1990s crises where there was persistent shelling. This is a four day uh, drill designed to show that the PLA is working assiduously on a blockade and invasion capability um, per the requests of Xi Jinping. Um, they're not ready to execute that yet, but they're trying to demonstrate that they could execute it if they had to now, and they're going to get better uh, if they can shift the balance of power in the coming years uh, in this decade. So um, with that threat and that taunt, uh, they've manufactured this fourth Taiwan crisis and now we have to manage it. So we're watching and learning what the PLA has been practicing. And we're learning and exactly how they might execute a blockade with 13 uh, combatants in six different areas surrounding Taiwan, uh, using uh, scores of aircraft, um, firing 11 missiles, including five that deliberately 
uh, and intentionally landed in the Japan uh, exclusive economic zone, something that was noted as uh, Speaker Pelosi was in Japan with Prime Minister Kishida. Um, and so you have to ask, um, to what effect will China's uh, sort of braggadocio and uh, you know invasion, blockade, um, execution, um, at least in a, a scenario, um, affect the long-term relationship? And I think the short, you know, the reality is U.S.-China relations are now in a new normal of more intense um, competition and higher tension. That's going to stay. That's not going to end after the four-day exercise ends. Um, the exercise does end early, I believe, this weekend because China is worried about their economy, as Doug Zakheim has written in uh, The Hill this week. Um, you know, Ch China is not just the property market, but now the steel sector. It's one it's one bad uh, bit of economic news after another in China right now. Uh, and Xi Jinping has got to be worried about that as he heads into the 20th Party Congress. Um, and so um, what we're going to see, though, is um, China continuing to modernize their PLA uh, and create this missile force. But we're also now going to see Taiwan get serious about their defense. I think defense spending in, in Taiwan is going to go up toward 3% of GDP. I think that Taiwan is going to be serious about acquiring asymmetric weapons, about building a territorial defense force. I think there's bipartisan support now in the United States, um, even more than ever, uh, for supporting Taiwan. I think Japan is going to double down on its own defense as well as supporting Taiwan. And while President Yoon in Seoul uh, was on a staycation and didn't have time to meet with Speaker Pelosi when she visited Seoul, um, I think the sentiment in Korea is also uh, very supportive of the need to be uh, have a stronger defense against China's coercion and potential uh, attack. And so, you know, Taiwan, China's making the case for Japan's counterstrike weapons with these drills, especially with missiles landing in the EZ. And when Wang Yi almost had a hernia, uh, you know, uh, in Cambodia, uh, explaining that the G7 condemnation of the exercises uh, was essentially written on toilet paper, um, you know, that doesn't go down well with our big European allies or with Japan or the United States. So, so China is backing itself into a corner on this issue deliberately, and I don't think they can really sustain that. So I, I actually think um, the probe that Speaker Pelosi has essentially um, initiated by visiting um, Taiwan has, again, underscored China's real intentions, and they're not benign. I want to ask one uh, follow-up question before uh, we, we move on uh, from this, uh, which uh, is an observation that uh, retired Royal Navy Rear Admiral Chris Perry, who's a, a very, very thoughtful strategic forecaster and risk uh, expert, was on BBC uh, earlier this week. And he said, actually, he said that the Chinese are revealing a lot of their capabilities here, which is very, very valuable in terms of signals, intelligence, weapons test. I mean, he said, we're learning an enormous amount. Uh, from from what they're doing, and he said, you know, from his standpoint, it was sort of like, hey, guys, keep it up. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's a good opportunity to learn. Are we are we learning anything? Are we learning anything valuable from this? And more important, is it moving any needle for us? Um, I had uh, the pleasure of um, sort of observing among um, a couple of uh, journalists, Mark Kansian's great series of war games uh, that he's been doing. Uh, him and his team at CSIS, um, you know, kudos. Uh, for what he's trying to do, right? Baseline. And and um, and Mark is going to join us next week to discuss um, sort of the strategy and the idea of not just doing playing a one-off war game, but actually playing the same game multiple times with different people to learn what are the lessons drawn from it. Then only matters if, for example, we say, hey, we have to accelerate long-range weaponry acquisition, right? 
we're doing it, but we're not really moving a sense of urgency. Do you think, Patrick, that this actually drives an, a, a new sense of urgency? Hey, we have to really focus on the capabilities that will deter conflict, right? There's too much conversation winning the war, not as much about deterring the war. And if we actually did a whole bunch of things now that even might be more expensive in the short term, it may actually help us deter. Do you think that this is something that gives more impetus and gives more urgency to those efforts from your standpoint internally? Absolutely. I mean, the PLA has the same capabilities this week that it had last week. The difference is that the world now sees that they may use them uh, in, in an act of aggression uh, against Taiwan simply for having a dialogue uh, over uh, a, a member of Congress visit. Um, and I think that changes perceptions, and therefore we have to act on those perceptions um, and see that the China, you know, as China's military gets stronger and as they get more aggressive, and as Wang Yi said, um, history will never repeat itself again. And I'm thinking, well, it's not up to the CCP to determine, you know, all of history. Um, history will be determined by many actors, not just by the PLA uh, and by Wang Yi. So, you know, yes, we have to act, and I think that's the urgency that is felt in Taiwan. Um, they're showing fortitude and determination. Um, the head of United uh, Microelectronics uh, Corporation, for instance, the founder of it, um, made a passionate uh, press conference and gave $100 million to, the, to Taiwan uh, for more defense um, over the need to protect um, uh, you know, the defense of democracy in Taiwan and to make sure that they're not intimidated. Speaker Pelosi, again, you know, we're not going to be intimidated by this. Beijing's not going to control her travel schedule. I think Japan, uh, looking at the missile launches uh, in the EEZ of Japan, uh, is, you know, gives a green light to Prime Minister Kishida to, to work toward doubling that defense budget and to add counterstrike. So it, you go on and on. I think China right. has just demonstrated exactly what we need to do, and now it needs to be done. And I think um, that we need to act on the support. And I think the president, if Dove's right, that the president wants to do foreign policy and defense policy. Um, I think he's going to find a lot of bipartisan support here as well as allied support if he's going to be stronger uh, in standing up to China. Well, I, I think uh, I, I think she was right to go. There's never a good time with the Chinese. Uh, and again, they're expert at manufacturing crises and they would have manufactured crises uh, across the board. And I commend our uh, audience to check out uh, Dove's uh, thoughtful piece, not only because I agree with it, uh, that Pelosi was right to Taiwan, China's threats uh, are, uh, are, are uh, hollow. Dove, you can come around at the very end because we're going to ask you to help sense and make sense of uh, a lot of these uh, different themes in a moment. But I want to bring Jim uh, into uh, the discussion. But where, where are we now? Is support staying as strong, right? Chris Coons, uh, the, the president and a very, very thoughtful senator, uh, has said like his concern is that this starts sliding from the headlines and sliding from focus. From, from your standpoint, um, where are we? Because we're in a very consequential period and the Ukrainians are being remarkably uh, methodical about how they plan to take back territory and are doing all the deep, I mean, they're, they're laying the groundwork for it and the Russians you know, know it. Well, thanks, Vago. I first of all, in terms of the vote on the Hill about Sweden, Finland, um, you're right about Josh Hawley. But, you know, there was also Rand Paul who voted present. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, that says a lot about Rand Paul. I won't even go into it, uh, leave that to others. But uh, but let's not leave his vote out in terms of two people who um, certainly have a twisted view of uh, Sweden, Finland, and NATO, and then other things too. So just to say that. But in terms of Ukraine, it's, it's interesting. 
Um, right. I think I think the support uh, from the United States, from Congress, uh, despite the headlines not, uh, you know, raising Ukraine all the time. I think what it, when it does talk about the effectiveness of the HIMARS and the effectiveness of how Ukraine is using them and the targeting and certainly the assistance on, the, on that end by the U.S., I think there is a um, that kind of of success is something Americans like to see. They like to see this assistance really being used well. Uh, and I think that's what really buoys the support for Ukraine right now is seeing this kind of success uh, consistently on the battlefield. Now we're just getting that Ukraine perspective. Uh, they're showing us all the good things, but I think, uh, I think it's, it's undisputable now uh, over time, this consistent success on using the American assistance towards pushing the Russians out. Uh, and that is what's going to really keep uh, the support coming off the Hill and out of the Pentagon as well, that this money's being well used. But you're right about um, the, the headlines generally though. I think where I'm worried more is, is in Europe. And we've talked about this in the past. I'm still pretty nervous about what the winter is going to look like and, and in terms of energy use, I'm worried about uh, despite all that the EU and other nations are doing to try to fill the gas tanks up by the time the winter uh, comes and to conserve energy uh, and to diversify. I'm afraid it's going to be tough uh, for Europeans, some more for some countries than others, and that's going to impact their support, at least make it more politically difficult for allies to make the case at home to stay strong. And so that's what I'm worried about more than in the U.S. and the fact that Ukraine is not in the headlines, uh, except in, on showing some very successful successful cases. And again, I'm glad that also in terms of the assistance that we're providing, that we're providing additional HIMARS, but particularly the ammunition. At the end of the day is logistics. Uh, and that ammo has got to keep going in there, the 155 millimeter ammo as well. Uh, and uh, training the maintenance guys. <laughs> We've got to right. make sure that the maintenance is is done and done quickly on those HIMARS as they need it. So, so you know, where things are today is kind of where they were yesterday and how they were last week. But but they're prepping the battlefield now for the, the Herson um, uh, potential counteroffensive there. Oh, and we'll see what that looks like. Uh, and what's, what's, what does a Ukrainian counteroffensive look like against dug-in Russians? And that's what we're going to have to see probably in the coming weeks. Let me let me uh, take you to another important question, which I want to get your uh, take on. The administration is considering a prisoner swap. Uh, that appears all but now that Brittany Griner has been convicted uh, to spend nine years in prison for having some medical marijuana that most Russians would have gotten a slap on the wrist for. Uh, so it's obviously a hostage situation. Paul Whelan is another hostage situation, former Marine who's been uh, imprisoned as well, uh, and uh, numbers of other Americans being imprisoned, and indeed Americans being apprehended now uh, fighting for Ukraine, who are going to be used as, as hostages. The administration is considering uh, trading Griner uh, and Whelan for uh, notorious dealer Victor Boot, uh, who has been uh, in uh, U.S. captivity. He's got all manner of blood on his hands, including American lives. Um, the Russians have now sort of said that they wanted the convicted for KGB murderer Vadim um, Prov uh, included in that in that trade. He's now being held by the Germans. How does this make remote sense? I understand the humanitarian grounds in which you want to uh, release, but we are also looking at trading two extremely dangerous guys for two innocent hostages. And 
are we then setting the stage for the Russians just to take more innocent hostages to trade them for a lot of other bad guys? I mean, what's what's the right thinking about this? Well, I, Without I think sounding that... heartless about it. Right. Right. I, I fully appreciate why they should not be in captivity and why somebody should not be held in a cage the way she's being held. Right. Uh, but I think that stage of of Russia now looking for uh, high value hostages like an American, uh, you know, uh, or, or other uh, ally, I think that stage has already been set. In fact, that stage has left the compound uh, in terms of Russia. I think they, for years, uh, Russia and, and other bad guys know that there that there is money to be made on, on that kind of tactic. And I think right now, uh, you know, if Griner uh, had been a former uh, Marine or a former uh, defense official or something like that, you know, that's that's that strikes at one part of the heartstring. But uh, Griner is a uh, very well-known figure, particularly now, um, and is, is so much more innocent uh, in, in if from politics, from all the kinds of things other folks might have been involved in. She is just so far removed from that, that her case strikes a particular chord, not just in the United States, but globally. And so that brings not just a humanitarian issue here, but there's much more emotional and then political uh, pressure uh, on on the United States, on Biden uh, to to cut a deal that might not be one of the best deals we've ever cut. Uh, And that's the that's the issue here. The Russians know they have someone who is high value. Uh, and when we talk about high value uh, in Washington, we usually mean a, a ISIS planner or an Al Qaeda person. But but a high value also has another definition, and that's someone like Reiner, uh, who who just uh, breaks the hearts across the U.S. and and hardens American views about Russia and Russia's barbarity uh, and the and their and the tactics that they use. And I think um, for Biden and for those who are working this deal. Unfortunately, this gives leverage to the Russians uh, above and beyond any other leverage they might have with another hostage. And so I think we're going to probably find ourselves looking at a swap that won't make a lot of people in the U.S. or uh, in Washington uh, too happy concerning, uh, you know, uh, what we what, you know, what we give up in return for Griner. But at the end of the day, uh, it looks like the the uh, her case is so unique in so many ways that the Russians are gonna take it to the mat uh, with her and we're gonna end up having to give a, probably make a lopsided deal. That's, I, that's, I don't see any other way out of it. We're running short on time and we've got a lot uh, to discuss and I wanna bring uh, Dove uh, back into uh, the discussion. Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, somebody who was very familiar to you, Dove, uh, as part of the senior leadership team that was on uh, duty uh, on September 11, uh, has finally been assassinated. That came a year after America's shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Is this a validation of the president's over the horizon strategy? I mean, I think um, there were some people who were admiring of the administration for being so careful to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, indeed, he was the only person killed. His, his family wasn't even injured uh, in this precision strike. Talk to us a little bit about how this changes any vector uh, at all, right? Taliban claiming they had no knowledge that he was living in central <laughs> central Kabul in the most wealthy neighborhood. And more importantly, how you tie all of these threads together, right? Help help make sense of, of all of this and how we should be thinking about, um, you know, not just what we saw in Afghanistan, 
but China and Russia and sort of put a little bit of a bow on it. And then we're going to hear from Tom Carrico before we, we part. Go ahead. Well, you know, there is a debate, obviously, as to uh, whether uh, this would have happened if uh, we still had troops there, whether we would have gotten them sooner. It's hard to know. It's theoretical, uh, hypothetical, really. And the fact is that after, it took us 20 odd years to find the guy. Uh, the real message is the Taliban hasn't changed. It's gotten worse, if anything. Uh, and so that really begs the question as to whether uh, had we had uh, troops there, could the Taliban have been kept out? Again, a hypothetical, we don't know. I don't think it's anything like as great a triumph for Biden as getting rid of bin Laden was for Obama. Uh, the real question is, does this in any way change the perception in Beijing as to whether we're withdrawing or not? And I think that the answer to that is how we respond to what Beijing is doing uh, around Taiwan right now, as Patrick talked about, if indeed the kinds of things that Patrick has strongly suggested we do and the Taiwanese do, I think the, the legacy of Afghanistan will make no difference at all to Beijing. They'll see we're pushing back hard. If on the other hand, we don't respond in any way like what Patrick recommended, then Beijing is gonna conclude this is more of the same you had Afghanistan, the United States is weak, et cetera, et cetera. And the same, by the way, to a lesser extent, will involve Ukraine. Unless we continue to support Ukraine beyond the next election, regardless of who the Speaker of the House is, uh, and again, we know that the Senate majority and minority leaders totally support what we're doing. We know that Speaker Pelosi supports what we're doing. I have no idea where McCarthy's going to be if he's Speaker unless we are seen to be equally as determined no matter who's in charge of which house, then again, uh, Putin will conclude that yes, we were, there was a burst of support for Ukraine, but now it's faded. And one straw in the wind that really worries me a lot is that the House appropriators nixed uh, or seem to be nixing their Pentagon request for a special fund for Ukraine. I think it's 500 million. Michael can correct me because the, the, uh, Appropriators always like to know exactly where every penny is going, and they hate funds. But in this case, I would have thought a fund that gives the Pentagon flexibility to send the right things at the right time to Ukraine should outweigh the narrow interests of the appropriators. And uh, having been a one who had to deal with them for several years, I know of whereof I speak. And uh, Dove, since you uh, brought it uh, to uh, money, I want to bring in uh, Dr. Tom Carrico, who is uh, one of the nation's leading experts on air and missile uh, defenses, into this conversation briefly uh, to discuss uh, Dr. Hicks's uh, decision to give uh, the national cruise missile, the Homeland cruise missile uh, and drone defense mission to the United States Air Force. Tom, I want to welcome you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us today. Well, Vago, great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Great to be with, uh, with you and the team uh, this morning. Uh, I'll just say, uh, you know, this decision by uh, Kath Hicks, the Deputy uh, Secretary, I, I would say is a very important and welcome decision that enables uh, the, the Pentagon to now move out at long last. Uh, and I would say it's frankly one of the most uh, necessary things to do to begin to finally adapt our air and missile defense efforts to the reality of long-term strategic competition with likes of Russia and China. So not just the rogue states, 
but the Russian-China thing. And this is something that the 2018 NDS said we needed to do, come to grips with, and we've taken a while to kind of get there. Why do I say that? Because it's not just about rogue state ballistic missiles anymore. You alluded to our national missile defense efforts for the ICBM threat from the North Koreas of the world, uh, but the uh, more garden variety cruise missile and just say air defense uh, problems more broadly is something that's been here for a long time. And the changed geopolitical situation is what requires us to go after this. Now, you might ask, as uh, former Vice Chairman uh, Admiral Winnefeld asked at CSIS in 2015, why on earth would we try to defend against uh, cruise missiles from the homeland when we're not going to defend against Russian ICBMs or Chinese ICBMs? Uh, and the answer, <laughs> the answer has a lot to do with what you might call non-nuclear strategic attack. Uh, and so this is, you know, think about the fact that there's 85% of the joint force in the U.S. homeland at any given time. Uh, the NORTHCOM, NORAD, and other parts of the joint force and, the, and the, the joint staff have been warning for years about the threat of, of uh, Russia, China, other, other actors you know, attacking or, or threatening the U.S. homeland to shape our decision making or, frankly, uh, 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 preclude us from projecting power uh, to other parts of the world. So it's a new mission. It's a, it's a necessary mission. This is not a future emerging thing. The UAV and the cruise missile threats is very much a today and even a, a yesterday kind of problem. And uh, the importance of doing that also is that it gives uh, the Air Force a little bit more capability to do uh, that forward cruise missile defense mission, uh, obviously something very, very important for air base uh, defense, big issue, particularly uh, in the Pacific, but indeed in Europe as well as we're seeing the kind of capabilities Russia demonstrates really quickly. Your estimate was it's like $32 billion, right? I mean, where does the money for this come from? Uh, Tom, because, you know, you could argue that the United States Army nor the United States Navy are investing the kind of money they need to be investing in their own missile defenses. Now you have one more new mission, which is going to consume by your estimates, what, about $32 billion to do it right? So where, where does this money come from? Okay, well, uh, two things. First, you talked about the connectivity with uh, uh, forward air defense, uh, forward air base defense. So let me first uh, allude to that. Uh, there's a, a very important com uh, conversation going on with the, the, the likes of Guam, the defense of Guam and other things there. And I think we're going to be able to learn a lot from the defense of Guam um, uh, to apply uh, to the homeland as well. And, and various uh, DOD officials have basically said that much. So that's kind of a test case, a test bed for figuring out how to put these pieces together. Uh, but but uh, uh, Vago, as you, you and I have talked many times over the years, uh, the cruise missile threat is one that has been woefully neglected. Uh, the roles and missions kind of point, pointing of fingers about the problem is, is a reflection of the fact that this is a, th a threat that is here today. We don't get to decide whether or not that threat is here today. It is here today. And so it's kind of coming to grips with it. On cost, uh, 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 thanks for uh, uh, bringing that up. Our report, we didn't just sort of nod in the direction of a desirable capability. We built an architecture and then we went and costed it. Uh, it was a fraction uh, of the cost of the uh, of the CBO, uh, the report that they put out last year. Uh, and that uh, number that you quote is, a, I would say, a, still a very conservative number. We were conservative at every turn. And the reason has to do with the fact that you don't have to defend everything. You, you in fact, it's, it's, it's a fool's errand to try to defend everything. And so you can pick a few things to defend well, rather than trying to defend everything badly. And the number that you put out there 
uh, $32 billion. That is in a 20-year estimate all in, not just for acquisition, but also for uh, operations and sustainment. Uh, so, you know, take a look at that and compare it to 20-year estimates of just about anything else. Things do add up. You're looking at just over a billion dollars for, for the operations of this of this sort of thing once it's in place. But again, is it, we don't really get to decide whether or not this is a threat. Uh, what matters is the, the concept and whether we think that this is something that we should invest in because of how the, the adversaries might might threaten us. But the UAS threat and the cruise missile threat, the broader air defense threat broadly, it's here. That's that's not open for debate. And this is why I think it was a, an important uh, leadership uh, effort by the Deputy Secretary to begin to move out on this. And now the Air Force, because you note the Air Force has been uh, doing this for the NORAD uh, in a significant way, but for a, a different kind of threat, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of the ubiquity of the missile threat and the air missile threat broadly, that now the Air Force is going to have a, a new uh, and growing role here, in addition to kind of what the, the Navy and the Army are doing uh, with their efforts as well. The, the, the key, uh, again, uh, as you alluded, Tom, is integration, integration, integration. Uh, just very briefly, you're going to join us uh, after you return from the big uh, Huntsville <laughs> conference. Obviously, one of the highlights is you're going to be addressing <laughs> addressing the conference, uh, as you always do. Uh, really quickly, what do we expect to learn uh, after that? Uh, conference, right? What, you know, what do you expect to be the big uh, take, aside from discussing, obviously, this decision? Well, I, I think this uh, cruise missile thing is part of a larger suite of new things, of new missions. And so you're going to see STRATCOM, Army uh, Space and Missile Defense Command, MDA, uh, Sean Ganey, who's in charge of the, of the department's uh, counter UAS efforts. And you're going to hear a lot about defensive law. And so those sort of four or five new mission areas uh, this is all very current. It's very kind of cutting edge, getting after these things. It's not just about the rogue state ballistic missiles anymore. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk soon again about what uh, what folks have to say on that. I um, would love to uh, have you back on uh, after the conference to give the audience a full takeaway. Thanks very much, uh, Tom. Really appreciate it. Have a great trip uh, and have you back on again soon. Thank you, Vago. Guys, I want to uh, put the question to you. Patrick, uh, start us off from an Asia Pacific uh, standpoint, right? I mean, because this, this decision is a little bit bigger um, than just territorial U.S. defense, right? I mean, it has global implications. I think the move toward more integrated and better air and missile defenses is occurring in Northeast Asia with our two key allies. So in Japan, just take a look at the Defense of Japan 2022 white paper that was just published. You'll see this is one of the five uh, key elements of what Japan is doing. And on Korea, um, Foreign Minister Park Jin has just irritated uh, Beijing over saying that the Yoon administration is not going to be bound by the, the Moon JN administration's policy of uh, not having any more THAAD missile defense batteries uh, and arguing about uh, integration uh, with Japan and the United States. So that's concerned China. That's because Korea is keeping its options open as the threat deteriorates and gets worse from a South Korean perspective. And Dove, walk us through a little bit of the politics of this very briefly. And then, Michael, I want to go to you about whether or not um, Congress has any appetite uh, uh, to support this, right? Because no bucks, no buck rogers. We're full of a lot of really great ideas. This works if you're actually going to resource it. If you're not going to resource it, then actually this this mission is yet another millstone wrapped around the U.S. Air Force's neck. Well, well, all the reporting that I saw was that, that the Missile Defense Agency lobbied very hard to get this mission. Uh, and that sounds logical to me, uh, why they would want it. But 
I think Kath Hicks, the deputy secretary, made the absolute right decision. If you're talking about cruise and air defenses, you're talking about the Air Force. Obviously, uh, the integration is critical. As Patrick just said, it's not just internal integration, it's with our allies. Again, I think the Air Force brings a lot more to the table than MDA, the Missile Defense Agency does, although it does have some international work for sure. Um, but again, at the end of the day, and Michael will have the last word on this, will Congress fund it? My guess is, particularly given what China's been doing all around Taiwan, there'll be less trouble funding it than there might have otherwise been. But I'll leave it to Michael, who's got the expertise. Look, I, I think there is uh, appetite on the Hill for uh, integrated air and missile defense. I mean, we saw it in the NDAA, in both the House and the Senate, when they included language to, ha- to study an integrated air defense in cooperation with us and our Middle East allies, not just the GCC countries, but countries outside the GCC as well. Um, so I think that there's a, an understanding that this is a global problem and that it's going to have resource, but it's going to have to be balanced against other things. And you know, without me getting into specific platforms, because they affect a lot of my clients, the Air Force, I think out of all the services, it has the toughest budget because they've got a lot of very, very expensive platforms and they're going to have to figure out uh, where the money is going to come from. And that's going to result in some tough choices. And I think there will be some pushback next year on, on defense spending, because if the Republicans do control the House, they are going to be looking to control spending and, and defense will not be immune from that. But uh, there is a major push among the armed services and appropriations committees to really look at the threat and look at what forces and what capabilities we need to meet the threat instead of just looking at arbitrary numbers. Hey, Vago, right before we go, I do think what we just talked about is going to have an impact on NATO missile defense as well. It's already being talked about informally in the hallways, but certainly what we've seen uh, around Taiwan and what we've also seen with Russia and Ukraine, I think allies are going to say, look, this NATO missile defense system, which is oriented towards Iran, as you know, we need to start thinking about making this a bit of a something that can protect the alliance from Russia as well. Guys. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great conversation. Covered a lot of ground. We'll go shorter uh, next week when we have a little bit less to catch up on after having uh, been uh, off for two weeks. Hope you guys all have a terrific uh, day, a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much.